Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today I have as my guest, Michelle Jordan. She is currently the Chief Diversity Officer at AT&T, the $168 billion American multinational telecom holding company. Michelle is responsible for strengthening and accelerating the company's efforts to foster an inclusive culture while integrating diversity practices into all aspects of the business. She's been at AT&T for 17 years. Previously, she had served as the VP for Talent and Leadership Development, heading up talent strategy at AT&T's Leadership Development and Executive Experiences. Prior to that, as Vice President Talent Acquisition, she led domestic and international talent attraction, recruitment, and staffing efforts at and Her talents have made her an impact, have had her made an impact on a variety of teams within at and including product management, corporate strategy, service management, executive communications, call center sales, and college recruitment, which is really something to talk about today. Michelle Jordan, welcome to The Caring Economy. Thank you, Toby. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you. So, Michelle, we always ask our guests up front to tell us sort of a digest of their story. Where were you born? How you got where you got? Maybe some mentors along the way. So please give us a little digest of Michelle Jordan's life. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was born and raised in Saginaw, Michigan, but it's about 80 miles north of Detroit, And I have a lot of family members there, but I'll tell you, I left when I graduated high school and you'll see on my journey, I stayed South um, after that. I do visit though from time to time, but, but born and raised in Saginaw, Michigan um, to teenage parents, um, the oldest, and um, eventually ended up being raised in a single parent household with my mother and my younger sister. And so I was my mom's right hand, grew up really fast, latchkey kid, Mm -hmm. um, watching her exhibit uh, grit and um, resilience, courage, um, taking risks, trying different things. Um, and, And the theme for her was to defy the odds and the stereotypes of a Black 18-year-old, 20-year-old who all of a sudden found herself with two daughters, Mm. what the world would tell her about her journey and success or her daughters following the same path. Mm. And so she's lived her life uh, really working to defy uh, those stereotypes and debunk the myths of what our lives would look like. And so you talk about mentorship. Um, I owe a lot of my journey, um, my attribution to my success to my mother and watching her and she's an incredible model. But I, um, I, I, I left Michigan and went to college in pursuit of being a chemical engineer. Mm-hmm. I was intrigued by the fact that there weren't many women um, in technology and there weren't many women in the engineering disciplines chemical engineer, chemical engineer was the one that had the least number of women. And so it was my high school counselor that planted that seed. And I I bid, she saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself. Mm -hmm. And so I spent actually the first part of my career, Toby, uh, as a chemical engineer, working in the chemical space, started out as an environmental engineer, 
before off-ramping to start my own business. So I consider my journey to be eclectic. So mm -hmm. I off-ramped for several years, started my own company, taught classes at college, um, university in um, Atlanta Technical College, I should say, in oh. Atlanta, had my two boys, decided to on-ramp once they got older and returned to corporate, found myself in a completely different industry, telecommunications. Yeah. And so um, thought I'd be here for one or two years. And it's been an incredible journey, which you talked about for the last 17 years <laughs> and went from the chemical engineering space to chief diversity officer, never could have written that. And so it's yeah. been a wonderful journey and I've learned so much along the way. Yeah, but uh, it all makes sense in the rearview mirror, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm chuckling a bit because my stepdad, who um, passed in December, we've actually had on the show when he was in hospice, he was a career BASF guy, a chemical engineer like you. Uh -huh. And he was from further north of you in Traverse City, actually Roger City, just north of Traverse beautiful, City. Beautiful country. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also want to explain for our younger listeners the concept of a latchkey kid. My brothers and I were that as well. So this is like there was a key somewhere and you came home from work or school rather by yourself and let yourself in the house and did what you did because mom was off working or doing things, right? Right. That's right. That's exactly that's what I meant. Growing up yeah. so fast, had to cook meals and you just figured it out at a young age. The key was there. Yeah. <laughs> And our mothers, both my mom raised five boys. She was a widow with five, but um, she eventually remarried. But I do think that she turned those five young men and you and your sister, I'm sure your mom turned you into little foot soldiers right away. That's so right. You had your chores and your duties and it sets you up for life, right? That's right. That is absolutely right. And so, uh, so yeah, so it's been an incredible journey. Can you talk a little bit about that career counselor who turned you on to um, the the science and the the chemistry route? Yeah, I can. You know, her name was Mary Jo Zuziak, Toby, and I've looked for her on social. Um, you, you know, you tend to reflect on decisions that you made and the, you go through this, what if I would have done this? Or what if I would have done that? And for me personally, I look back on um, people who have invested in me or poured into me in some way, shape or form. And I thought about my basketball coach in high school. Um, I thought about Mary Jo Zuziak, who was my my high school counselor. Mm -hmm. She actually, I was going to go down a business path because I'd I'd seen my mom dress up for work and go into an office. And I thought, you know what? That's who I was seeing most of the time. I think that's what I'm supposed to do too. And so it was Mary Jo who, who pulled me aside and she said, you know, you have high aptitude for science and math. Have you ever thought about a different discipline? Have you ever thought about um, engineering? And so I had not, of course, and she pulled yeah. out this big old book back then. Imagine oh, yeah. that. <laughs> and we're flipping through pages and she's describing, you know, the different disciplines, what it is. And, and she's, she opened my mind just in a short conversation to the art of something different than I had planned for myself. And so not only she didn't stop there, she helped me get a, an internship in high school as a senior in high school at Dow Chemical Company in Midland, Mich Michigan, which is only 20 minutes or so from where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And that took it even further. And so I, I went to school in the mornings and worked at Dow Chemical Company in the afternoon. 
and um, just broaden my horizons. And I just don't, I don't think that we give people like high school counselors enough credit to help inform and shape and help people believe in themselves, especially, especially at that age, you know, there's this expectation that kids are supposed to know what they want to do for the rest of their lives. Now that I have my own kids and I'm looking at them like, no way do they know, want, know what they want to do. But there's this weird expectation and that high school counselors play such an incredible role yeah. in helping just think through it and discover other potential paths. And she served in that way for me. And I have not been able to find her Since. on any social media, any old yearbooks. No way. I haven't been able to contact her to thank her. Okay. Well, maybe maybe this podcast will release that. Release maybe. I'll find yeah. out. I wonder your two sons, are they, do they have a similar kind of either a counselor or a teacher at school that is playing that kind of catal catalytic role in their lives? There is someone there uh, at their school that they've had, a, they've experienced a lot of turnover, but I will tell you that um, we use the high school counselor as an advisor for our entire family. Um, when we do meet them, though, they're, the school is experiencing some turnover. Mm -hmm. But my husband and I lean in a lot. So I, 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 my mother went to college. She didn't finish because I was born. And so she came back home. She both she and my dad both came back home. They went to the same college. And when they found out I was coming, they left and didn't go back. She she didn't know you know, what kind of counseling and advice to give me other than you need to go to college, you need to get a job and, you know, going to college will help ensure that. And so my husband and I both, we play a big part in helping to help our children ask questions, think about the art of the possible to help expose them. But we, we use that high school counselor at their school as sort of an advisor to us to help make sure we're not missing something in the process or something they should be, be exposed to. So absolutely. Yeah, I um, I think that the, I feel for these administrators today, probably they're more stretched than ever. And some parents are either not involved at all or some are overly involved. So yeah, yep. I probably like true. my husband and I. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds like you're going right down the middle and you speak from experience. First one, actually, the Dow Chemical, is that available now to kids? Do you think a high school senior year internship at a corporation like that? Or is that was that an oddity then and remains an oddity today? I see it. We do it actually here at AT&T. Mm -hmm. uh, we have high school students who come and they spend time with us now that scenario is one where it's um it's it's voluntary it's part of a program i actually then was getting paid um actually bought my first car in high school because oh. of a chemical company job definitely still exists today i just don't know how widespread it is we yeah. have a big like i said big representation of a local school here in dallas that we support um and i'd venture to guess that it happens in pockets uh, mm. still today. It's such a valuable, uh, it was such a valuable program and experience. Uh -huh. Well, I would like to think that our listeners who would be interested in that for their children would ask the question, right? If it doesn't exist, it doesn't mean it couldn't, right? That's right. So, because I do think that vocational exposure and training is critical. It helps us test our hypotheses about who we want to be, what we want to do. I had a very similar conversation yesterday with a colleague who's a young high school um, 
she's an intern once a week and she thinks she, like you, she thought she should follow what her mom's doing because that's what she saw. Her mom's a nurse. So she's thinking about nursing. And I said, that's great. Maybe you want to shadow a nurse or talk to some nurses and see and make sure that you're not ruling out other things that could be equally exciting or even more exciting. So I think it's good to have those guides, but then also to test them. <laughs> that's right. That's absolutely right. And that's exactly what uh, Ms. Zuziak did for me and, and said, hey, I'm planting this seed, but why don't you go and check it out and see? Yeah. Super cool. So it's incredible. So so now let's go to AT&T. Tell us, I mean, you've had 17 years. I'm I'm particularly interested in the current role as chief diversity officer. What does that mean? What does that look like? Some cynical people would say, oh, that's the flavor of the month and corporate structures. Others say that's, that's the only way forward. And I wonder what the reality is there at AT&T. Yeah, I'll tell you, Toby, for, he, for me here, so one of the great things about my situation as the chief diversity officer at a global company like AT&T is that we've been at this for decades. I am AT&T's fifth chief diversity officer. And so that that is that's great in that this work is still you're, you're still pushing a rock up a hill in that there's so much work that can be done holistically. By no stretch of the imagination is AT&T perfect, but we have made an investment um, for some time now. So coming, it made saying yes to doing this work so much easier because there wasn't, there isn't this sort of path that you have to take to convince um, leaders, mm. your, uh, leadership team that this is an area that we should be focused on. We get it. And so, um, so my responsibility here in this role is just really overseeing our strategy, making sure that we are making progress in this work. Um, there's still lots of work left to do in that regard mm -hmm. uh, and making sure that people understand the role that they play in driving the progress because it's not just the chief diversity office that um, makes and drives that progress. It's really all of us. And so helping people really understand the role they play, helping connect this work to business strategy, helping connect this work to helping people understand the value of an inclusive culture, mm -hmm. um, how we can enjoy sustainable success, or we create an environment where everybody can come and thrive. They can come and feel like they belong. And so that's 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 my work. That's what it's about. And the beauty of it is that I have incredible support here at AT and T and our leadership in um, driving that progress. And so, uh, if I may, I know it was before your time as Chief Diversity Officer, but with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Black Lives Matter, how how did AT and T respond then? And I would like to believe you're probably better equipped to deal with it than some brands, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned the the fact that we already had a diversity office intact and where, as you called out, some companies are just starting um, the chief diversity officer role or organization for that matter was just introduced then. And so for us, I'll tell you, we did a lot of listening, hmm. a lot of listening. Um, there was a lot of empathy people seeking understanding. We corralled resources to help um, our black and brown employees, our black employees particularly, but also to help 
a colleague, their colleagues and our colleagues really understand how to connect and support. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge part of um, our response. We also made an investment in organizations, uh, communities in the community as well. Mm -hmm. We were already on the journey of um, investing in historically Black colleges and universities, mm -hmm. but we elevated that work as well, um, mm -hmm. that investment, and we continue to um, work in that space and make that investment today. But we made some investments there. We also, we became transparent. This is what's happening in our organization, and we are not perfect. We've got a lot of work to do, as I mentioned earlier. We've been on this journey for some time. Uh, we've see, received a lot of external recognition from, from outside companies about the progress that we've made. Um, mm. We've celebrated internally. We have an, an incredible employee body who's leaned in at employee resource groups, but um, we still have work to do. And so we became a lot more transparent with what we look like inside of our company and said and identified and called it out this is specifically where we need to work. Mm -hmm. So since then, we've continued to be transparent in um, the makeup of our company. We've continued to be transparent around areas of focus and where we need to double down. Mm -hmm. um, what we did in my role as chief diversity officer, prior, my predecessor had a large scope in that he had responsibility for not just uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but he also had uh, training. He had um, in his 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 remit talent acquisition. He had a lot of other functions, but he had the title of chief development and diversity officer. There are a lot were a lot of competing responsibilities. Mm -hmm. After that, we um, decided to break off chief diversity officer and just have my role solely focused. I go to bed thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I wake up thinking about how to drive progress um, in our company and hopefully ultimately um, be a model for other companies and be able to help other companies on their journey. And so lots of lots of work. We still have a journey ahead. That's that rock I was talking about. Yep, pushing it. Yeah, it's just a few. Yeah, still work ahead, but we, we responded. And I think our employees would be proud of our response, but they they'd also say we still got work to do as well. Sure, sure, it's never done. Uh, for sure, ladies and gentlemen, again today on the caring economy, we have as our guest Michelle Jordan. She is the chief diversity officer at AT and T, the one hundred and sixty eight billion dollar American multinational telecom holding company. Uh, Michelle, I want to ask you about the HBCUs. I'm glad you brought that up, and then about international. On HBCUs, for our international um, audience, those are historically Black colleges and universities, which are preeminent schools here in the United States. Can you tell us a little bit more about that initiative or how it's working? Yeah, I will. I'll, there are a lot of um, a lot of moving parts in our investment in um, HBCUs. So I'll start with our Dream in Black, AT&T's Dream in Black program. That's one that helps us show these generations the art of the possible. And so as part of that program, we have, we launched a couple of years ago, uh, a Rising Future Makers program for HBCU students. And it's intended for those students who are making a difference in their communities, 
They're making a difference on their campuses mm -hmm. and it gives them embedded connections, embedded networks and opportunities for them to succeed. And what also comes with that, Toby, is $5,000. So it's 25 students who make up that cohort mm -hmm. of rising future makers. And we give, um, we award them $5,000 so they can continue to advance um, their efforts and their investments and contributions to their society, to their campuses. Many of them have nonprofit organizations, they're mm -hmm. designers, they're entrepreneurs. And so that's seed money to help um, continue them on their journeys. We also provide them with a 5G enabled mobile device. We provide them with a service for a year. Imagine that, right? Well, you have to, Five right? Phone, <laughs> courtesy, right? For a year, you don't have to pay for anything. And then they get to be connected with uh, celebrities who serve as mentors um, on the journey throughout the time, throughout the year as they're a part of the cohort. So this mm -hmm. is our second year doing, doing that. We also um, we also sponsor the historically black colleges and universities um, at the All Star Game. We were in Salt Lake City for the NBA All Star Game. So, given giving those HBCUs a lot of exposure and visibility, um, hopeful that there's an investment. Someone sees them. Other companies come on board to invest in them. Mm -hmm. uh, students consider them. HBCUs as an option. Uh, I'll tell you, we also host an HBCU innovation challenge. This allows um, HBCUs to compete and work on um, projects, um, unique projects to help advance technology in the, um, in the wireless and, and internet space. And so that's been incredible. And then lastly, but certainly not least, we also have um, an HBCU Future Leaders Program. So every summer, we bring into our organization um, interns. Mm -hmm. uh, many of them are from historically Black colleges and universities. And so while they're here with us, we pair them with a mentor. And that mentor stays with them for three years. They have available to them mentorship uh, while they're here with us. But even when they leave campus, a safe space uh, with somebody in a partnership or relationship that helps them navigate the terrain. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so that's incredible. And then here at at t we have probably uh, myself included, I am an HBCU alum, Florida A&M University in Tallahassee, Florida is where I graduated. So I got my undergraduate degree. Um, but we have here at at t probably about 1200 alum from historically black colleges and universities. And so a strong network here at ATC. Awesome. So, and that's not it. That's just some of the things that we yeah, have. Yeah, no, it's very helpful. Thanks for asking the question. Uh, of course, I think it's so important. I try to coach people politely. You know, so often anyone who wants to engage with quote unquote higher ed is gonna say Harvard or Ivy League schools, right? But this country is blessed with so 3,500 colleges and universities. And I always encourage people to think about certainly HBCUs, but also community colleges. Yes. Um, and then here in New York state, we have a strong, the SUNY state system, the CUNY city system, and just the most phenomenal opportunities for education, truly the American dream and social, uh, you know, so, sort of a social escalator opportunity. So I'd like to challenge people particularly international people who come to the U.S. and they've heard of Harvard, they've heard of Columbia, 
but they may not know that we've got probably more Nobel laureates coming from CUNY than probably any other school in the United that's, States. So, that's so, so I, I'm, I am so aligned with you. I mentioned to you earlier that when I off-ramped from corporate, I um, started my own business. But even when I had the business, I actually taught at Atlanta Technical College, which is a two-year college, a, a technical school mm-hmm. that helps um, helps those who are coming from high school, even even adults, seasoned mature adults who come back and decide, you know, I want to learn a trade. And I taught small business um, marketing mm-hmm. classes there, but you are so right. And one of the things that we've also done here at at and is we have, um, we have with our internship program, which used to, used to be uh, the requirement was you had to have a four-year degree. Well, we've relaxed that requirement to your yeah. point. There are gems, there are gems out there that we are missing and we've also partnered with um, 110, a nonprofit organization that actually was stood up um, after George Floyd's murder mm-hmm. with the mission of identifying and helping 1 million Black citizens, Black people find family sustaining wage jobs over the next 10 years that don't require you to have a degree. And so you were one of the early, the company's coalition members that signed on early and made the commitment to help reach that goal of 1 million hires. And so couldn't be more proud of that work um, as well. But I totally agree with you. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. And that's an interesting story there because you need to help people who historically been denied the opportunity to create wealth, to own property, Mm -hmm. to get a fair wage, to actually be part of the American dream. So uh, I think that's fantastic. I wonder if you could talk a little bit, Michelle, about the international, your global company, you've got a global role you know, when you work in a matrix organization, you've got to land messages and stories that are tailored to that particular geography and function. But what does D, what does DEI or diversity look like at AT and T outside the U.S.? We have a large Mex- operation in Mexico, and then obviously we're international um, in that we support domestic companies, uh, provide products and services to our dom- domestic companies who have a presence internationally. So we have a pretty sizable um, uh, employee base uh, internationally. And I'll tell you, when we look at our data, we generally look at you know, our representation um, mm-hmm. internationally just from a gender standpoint, um, obviously not from a race and ethnicity standpoint. Mm-hmm. And globally, when you think about uh, gender representation at AT&T, we've made some progress. We are represented globally uh, by women at a rate of about 33, 34%. Mm -hmm. And that's grown over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. We were seeing early on in the pandemic, I think there were, we were seeing this phenomenon where women were leaving um, corporate um, because it was hard to just juggle, you know, life and and work. Uh, And so we were seeing that and we were impacted a little bit, but we've rebounded. And mm-hmm. so we've seen steady progress in the way of representation mm-hmm. um, of women in AT&T, both domestically and global, mm-hmm. globally. And so I uh, couldn't be more proud of that. And we're continuing to look at ways that we can certainly make AT&T a place that's attractive for mm-hmm. more, more women, uh, especially in our technology um, spaces. 
We also have, you know, in the spirit of um, uh, Women's History Month, we have mm. International Women's Day coming up really soon. And Sweet. we have an actual program, Toby, for international women. And we're actually getting ready to launch the next installment. This is year three of it, and it continues to grow. But making sure that we're creating a space where we hear them, um, where we see them, we are making sure that our supervisors and our culture is one that's really sensitive to their needs, i.e. not having co conference calls um, at, at when it's nighttime for them, like really being sensitive to when we schedule. And there's learning and muscle mm -hmm. that you have to build there. And that's just one example. Mm -hmm. But really, we, we have that program and it's been really enlightening for me to really understand the needs of our international based employees mm -hmm. um, and and that international women's program helps us do that yeah you know that's very enlightening because i would say um for most u.s headquartered multinationals it's always asia that gets short shrift you know the calls in the middle of the night so when i was running comms at christie's globally i would often say i'll do the call at eight or nine o'clock night my time mm -hmm. yeah, um, that's right just to send a message that you know i hear you i see you i respect your your family time too mm -hmm. you know it's be all the time one way or the other right michelle i wonder also going back to your um your staff are you, how's the board diversity look is it pretty good oh yeah we have great uh, board diversity actually the chairman of our board um bill canard mm -hmm. is um african-american um, we have Hispanic representation. We have female representation on our board as well. So we've got um, great representation, always room for um, evolution and always room for opportunity, but we've got really great representation from a race race and gender standpoint, but also diversity of experience, mm -hmm. uh, bringing uh, in that expertise onto our board to help ensure that we have a viable business to be the checks and balances, but incredible diversity of experience on our board as well. Great. I'm looking more and more and doing interviews with, you know, blind and deaf and neurodiverse mm -hmm. because what I think is beautiful about diversity and DNI is, or just inclusion is the work's never done. It's never done. So yeah. Everyone feels that they belong. We've got work to do. And I find that exciting because more and more people do belong each year, I think, because of people like you and the efforts you're making at AT&T. So thank, oh, thank you. you. Uh, last question I want to ask you is uh, pearls of wisdom, advice that you would give to either a young person listening in or maybe someone who's been perhaps disrupted later in their career and are trying to figure out their way. Uh, what have you gleaned through the years that you might want to share? Oh, man, uh, lots. I am... Um... You know, we we talked about the career journey early on. And, you know, I, I told you the story about, you know, my mom and the grit and just hard work and putting in the work and rolling your sleeves. And I certainly um, got bit by that bug uh, from her. And I'll tell you, when I look back on my journey, I um, discovered that work and life and the whole balance and the notion of work-life balance. I figured out several years ago that there is no such thing. I told you I'm a chemical engineer. My mind is wired to solve problems. And I was bound and determined to crack the work-life balance code. Like 
I am going to figure this out. So I, I learned a few years ago that there is no such thing. And, and, and actually the pandemic really, really helped me realize and bring Mm -hmm. into perspective Mm -hmm. that there is no such thing. And I actually flipped it to life work harmony. And I, in that order intentionally. And so I just encourage people and I do it with my team. Like today, we, our working hours, they where we exchange emails or where we're on with each other is in the window of eight to five in our time zone. Doesn't mean we don't do work, but we shut the meetings down. We allow people space and time to mm-hmm. think, to respond to their um, action items that came out of the day, to be with their families, mm-hmm. to get home at a decent hour. Doesn't mean that work stops. We stop these sort of interactions so that people can have life. Mm-hmm. So um, we we started no meeting Fridays same yeah. like that so that people can just you know just really have some focus time mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a big believer in um finding that harmony mm-hmm. and creating space so that and modeling it so that my team can um really feel like this is this is an organization that where i see them i care about them i mm-hmm. empathize with them and so I would say life, work, harmony, the, if you can, if people can adopt that, and if you lead people, if you're a people leader, think about ways that you can walk the talk and creating that space for your, for your team. And, and if you don't lead people, you're an individual contributor, uh, model that, demand that. Found was that when I started activating those little tactics, nobody said, nope, you can't do that. Right. Nope. You shouldn't do that. You do have to keep a container for life and a container for work. Yeah. Um, nobody, nobody stopped me. And so I try my best to model that and encourage others. And so that that's something I'd leave on someone who's just starting out. Yeah. And to your point, even somebody who's uh, um, further along in their career is to, you have to respect it first and model it first and then train others to respect that harmony that you establish, your family mm-hmm. members, your 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 colleagues, um, friends, et cetera. And so that that's a little nugget that I believe that I find that has served me well. I'm a, I'm a work in progress. I'm not perfect. <laughs> we all are, but I love that honesty. But it's helped me. I think that's wonderful. When you say life, work, harmony, I almost hear like a jingle, like I hear wind chimes as you're saying it. There's something (laughs) very soothing about it. So thank you for that pearl of wisdom, Michelle Jordan. Ladies and gentlemen, again today, I wanted to thank our guest, Michelle Jordan. She is the Chief Diversity Officer at AT AT&T, the $168 billion U.S. multinational telecom holding company. Michelle, I look forward to having you back at another time. Thank you so much for joining us on The Caring Economy. Thank you, Toby. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.